This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. It was one o'clock in the morning, and Silita Guy was sitting at a picnic table in High Park in Toronto. A police officer wanted to know what she was doing, which wasn't going to be easy to explain. And as he's, you know, interrogating me and my my field partner, asking us these questions, you know, my shirt starts to move because I had this colony of, you know, 25 or so bats down there. Silita is an urban ecologist, someone who studies how plants and animals act in cities. For Silita, that means catching bats, putting little radio collars on their backs to track them, and then, on cold nights, warming them back up so they can fly away. Hence, the shirt of writhing bats. Finally, he I guess he decided he wanted to address the elephant in the proverbial room, uh, which was, you know, ma'am, your shirt is moving. To which point I said, you know, yes, officer, I have... 25 bats down there. They're warming back up. They're getting ready to fly. And he was like, okay, that's it. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. This is this is too much for me. <laughs> and did he walk away or what happened after that? He, he backed away slowly. Um, and then I think once he felt he was at a safe distance, uh, he like spun around and like sped walk back to his, his cruiser. Um, <laughs> it was a very interesting night. And it was one of many nights Silita spent chasing bats to find out where they spent their time, which she thought would be at the park. Instead, what we found were bats preferred or were instead living in people's homes or, you know, on large trees on their property. So kind of unexpected. Silita says there's a hidden world of urban ecology, an entire ecosystem of animals that live in the cities humans build. You know, around the world, there are a lot of species who are doing great in, in city landscapes. They actually do better in our cities than they do outside. So today on the show, we talked to Silita about the animals that love city life and why we need to understand how nature uses cities so we can design them to be better for all of us. I'm Lauren Summer, and you're listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Silita guy loves bats. So the cutest bat, I think, has still got to be the Honduran white bat. They are all white, and they've got these, like, little yellow faces that almost kind of look like adorable little piglets, in my, in my mind at least. You should Google them. They're, they're adorable. And she says there's good reason to love them. Bats have a critical role to play in our ecosystem. So they do a lot of good things for our planet um, and for us as humans, right? When they feed on insects, they act as free pest control for things like our crops and our farmers. Um, bats in tropical landscapes, they, um, they feed on pollen or nectar from plants, and so they're really important pollinators of a lot of plants uh, in these tropical landscapes. They are a little creepy to some. I think that just comes from a, maybe a misunderstanding. I talked to Silita Guy about being an urban ecologist and writing about it in a children's book. 
So, Sylita, I think a lot of us, we see pigeons and crows in cities, but Mm -hmm. we may not think of them as ecosystems, you know, the way we think of like a a rainforest being an ecosystem. But it sounds like there really is this hidden world of animals that are, are actually thriving in cities, right? Yeah. And that's that's part of why. So, you know, I spent a lot of time studying, you know, bats in the city that I'm from. And before I, you know, undertook this project, I I think like a lot of people didn't really pay attention to all of the wildlife, the plants, the animals, the insects that I share our cities with. And it wasn't until I started doing work in urban ecology that I was like, wow, our cities are really wild places. Yeah. And so being an urban ecologist, I mean, ecologists, you know, we have this image sometimes of, you know, people like hiking in the remote wilderness to study animals. So urban ecologists, it's still an ecologist in the city, right? Yeah, we are asking the same type of questions about, you know, the species that we share our planet with. We're still studying the interactions between species. We're just doing it in a slightly different landscape than we might imagine. Yeah. So you wrote about bats um, and a bunch of other animals in your children's book. It's called Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats, Urban Ecology, mm-hmm. Community Science, and How We Share Our Cities. Um, one of the cool stories has to do with a rat mobile <laughs> scientist <laughs> who drives around this mobile rat lab. And she was trying to figure out how to track these rat networks, which really actually sounds hard, right? Like, how did she do that? Yeah. yeah so the, the trick with, again, studying rats in cities, and this is the case for studying a lot of wildlife in cities, um, you know, rats spend a lot of time underground. And so if we think about something like uh, putting a GPS tag on them, well, often they, they they rip those GPS tags off themselves by kind of ramming it repeatedly against, um, uh, you know, a pipe or a small area that they're, they're trying to fit through. Um, and if we think about something like what I would use, a, a radio transmitter, um, those signals don't transmit from underground. So a a bit of a challenge. The methods that we might use, again, out in the wild where there's no interference from anything else, much harder to use those methods in cities. And so Dr. Kaylee Byers, who, you know, is the the owner of the Ratmobile, the one who tracks these rats throughout Vancouver, uh, she opted to use genetics instead to understand how these rats were moving in our city landscapes. So what did she find in terms of how rats are moving around cities? Like, what are they doing? So they don't move as far as we might think. They often stay within the city block that they are born in. In cities, we have these barriers that limit animal movement. If you think about crossing uh, even a a four-lane street, right? As humans, we need crosswalks. We have stoplights. And so a barrier like that is, is very, very hard for an animal to make that journey. As humans know, being in a city has big challenges, right? There is traffic, there's pollution, there are things that we know are not great for human health. And so is that something that actually affects the animals that live there too? Absolutely. So living alongside humans is stressful, right? Uh, We generate a lot of noise, we generate pollution. And so that does impact, you know, animal health as well. And there are lots of really cool scientists uh, in many places of the world that are understanding how, you know, interacting with humans um, is stressing out species that live in cities, but also how doing things like eating our garbage or us, you know, feeding the wildlife, how that is kind of wrecking havoc on their health as well. If you think about something like a raccoon or a pigeon that's often going through the garbage, that's not good for them. Um, and, you know, there are people around the world trying to understand how that impacts their health. Yeah. 
And you write about the science of urban ecology, but you really focus on the scientists that are doing the work, you know, how they do it, you know, what they're Mm -hmm. puzzling through and their challenges and their failures. I mean, was it important to you to show that? So it was. And, you know, part of writing this book in the way that I opted to is I wrote a book that I wish I had had when I was a kid. I think there are lots of children's nonfiction books about science, and they give us some really cool facts, especially, you know, books about nature. It's like, these are really cool. These are really dope facts about wildlife and and things on the planet. But, you know, one of the questions that I always had when a kid was, I'm like, this is great, but like, how? <laughs> how do we know these things? How do we find out these things? And it wasn't really until I went to university, until I went to grad school, that I was exposed to this process of how we do science. And so I wanted to write a book that showcased the process of science, because I think that's really important, but also maybe showcased some of the people who we don't often think of as as studying nature. Um, you know, when I was choosing scientists to put in this book, there were no shortage of um you know, scientists of color to feature. There were no shortage of, of female scientists to feature. Um, so that was that was something that's really important to me. Yeah, and you you also cover how you know being a scientist of color actually can affect being in the field, who you experience in the field, the data that <laughs> yep. actually gets gathered in the field. Yeah, how is how do you see that play out? Yeah, so I, I mean, I have some personal experience with this. So I am a Black woman. Um, one of my uh, research assistants at the time, uh, he was a Black man, and we found that we always had a much harder time with the police when it was the two of us working together. Uh, so if it was me and our postdoc, um, who was you know not Black, she's a white woman, uh, they would come, ask us their questions, be like, okay, this is cool, peace, we're out. Thanks for explaining it to us. Uh, and anytime it was he and I, there it took us much longer to get to that. And I think, you know, it also plays out in particular in urban ecology. Uh, you know, a lot of the data that we may often use is what I like to think of as like crowdsource data. So we get everyday people helping us to collect data in their local neighborhoods. Generally, you know, white, more affluent people going out there, learning about the nature in their city, which is great. Um, they may not evenly kind of sample the environment. They may stick to the areas that they are familiar with. And so it also leads to gaps in in our data and where that data is collected. And in many cities, you know, lower income neighborhoods and communities of color, it's well documented, have less access to green space. Um, Mm -hmm. But as a result, the biodiversity is lower there. Then it's almost like a biodiversity kind of deficit in those neighborhoods then. Yeah. And and that's, that's a problem, right? And there are a lot of scientists working on kind of the unfair distribution of nature and how a lot of you know longer term policy in cities has influenced that. So now we we can change it and we need to change it. Um, it's good motivation to make sure that we change our cities and design them into the future in a way that everyone has equal access to nature no matter where they live. Why do you think it's important that ecology and ecologists focus on urban areas maybe more than they have? I you know, I think urban areas are this um, important area to focus on because they are continually growing, right? Our cities aren't going away anytime soon. It's really essential that we understand how we can safely make space for nature in the cities because we know that having that nature around just leads to healthier ecosystems. It's better for our planet and it's better for us, you know, as humans, right? Nature makes us not only healthier, but also just happier. And so I think continuing to ask questions about, you know, what a species need to survive in cities and 
how can we use that knowledge to design greener cities into the future is just going to be more and more important as our cities continue to grow into the future. So for those of us who do live in cities, you know, what can we do or maybe not do to kind of support those ecosystems and those animals? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the question because there's so many individual actions we can take. I think the the thing that I want to leave people with is, you know, one of the best things that you can do, especially to start, is to just go outside and take a walk and start to to look for some of that nature that you share that city with, no matter how small it may be. It could be ants in the ground. It could be a, a, a noticing that, you know, the tree in front of your school or your office building or wherever you are is slightly different from one or a little further away. But I think just, you know, get outside, do some exploring, learn what you share your city with, and then see if you've got local programs in your community that are already working to try to protect and conserve some of that, that local nature. Sylita Guy is an ecologist, data scientist, and author of the children's book, Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats, Urban Ecology, Community Science, and How We Share Our Cities. Sylita, thanks so much for coming on Shortwave. Thank you for having me, Lauren. This episode was produced by Burley McCoy, edited by Stephanie O'Neill, and fact-checked by Katherine Seifer. The audio engineer for this episode was Patrick Murray. I'm Lauren Summer. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. If you're looking for a new way to support this show and public media, please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free listening and bonus episodes from NPR shows like this one. You can find out more at plus.npr.org.